This is IVP. Have you heard about the new monthly book club from InterVarsity Press? IVP Book Drop is the perfect club for readers who want to grow spiritually, hear from diverse voices, and start powerful conversations on today's most important cultural topics. Plus, it's only $9.99 each month. When you join IVP Book Drop, you'll receive our best-selling title, Reading While Black by Issa Macaulay, as your very first book. And after that, you'll continue to receive one curated book a month for just $9.99. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you already know many of the diverse authors featured like Issa Macaulay, and you'll meet even more authors like them each month. IVP Book Drop is the easiest and most affordable way to receive the latest IVP books from your favorite authors. To learn more and join today for only $9.99, visit ivpress.com slash disrupt22. That's ivpress.com slash d-i-s-r-u-p-t-22. Save big on books worth talking about by signing up for IVP Book Drop today. John Ward writes about politics, culture, and religion and is currently the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News. He is the author of Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter, and the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. And his new book, Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation, coming out April 2023. John also hosts a podcast that seeks to understand how our politics is broken and how to fix it. It's a big, <laughs> a big ask called The Long Game. So welcome, John, to The Disruptors. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, John, I am really interested, especially in your new book, about your break from evangelicalism. Tell me what that looks like. Well, even today, I was reading back through the final proof of the book, and I read that I had I wrote early in the book that I have left evangelicalism behind, but I was kind of puzzling over the language in the sentence. I think the exact language was something about leaving that form of evangelicalism behind. And so I think there's still a lot of conflictedness in me, as I think there is in a lot of people who have come into this world or claimed this faith or been a part of this faith at some point in their lives, whether it was from childhood like it was for me or whether it was later in life. I think there's this sense of conflictedness over what does the term mean? Obviously, that's a big question. And then what do I disagree with? And does that mean I'm out of it entirely? Or... Am I just rejecting or turning my back on or turning towards something better than just part of it? So when I look at the Babington quadrilateral, which is like the theological uh, schema for the basic beliefs of evangelicalism, I generally just sort of am still on the same page in a lot of ways. I think the general critique you get from a lot of people struggling with these questions is just that and Greg Thompson put it pretty well on an interview I did with him two years ago, probably when their 
him and Duke's book on uh, reparations came out, which is just something to the effect of that a lot of evangelicalism is a cultural project which presents itself as a theological project. And I think a lot of us are really struggling with the cultural baggage that's presented as biblical or, you know, divine mandate and questioning how much of that is, is true. For me, what I kind of argue in the book, and I didn't say this in the Christianity Today piece, but I kind of feel like I was saved. And that's a key word, right? Because a lot of Christians think of themselves as saved. I think I was saved from fundamentalism by journalism. I'm just grateful for the last 21 years of learning how to love truth with more integrity than the way I was raised. And that's not a indictment of the motives of anybody I was raised by. I mean, my dad actually did a great job and in the book he's praised mostly, but I think evangelical culture doesn't equip people to exercise discernment very well. And so that's, one of the things I'm trying to point out in the book. Yeah. So for, for non-Christians, right. And also mm-hmm. just people who are struggling, what are the the positive things that you feel like, you know, that stay with you and that maybe you yeah. feel com- conflicted about like saying I'm not evangelical because, you know, there are these positive things. What are they? There's a lot. I think one of the things that's really unique to modern evangelicalism and probably evangelicalism throughout American history Um, Francis Fitzgerald's book on the history of evangelicalism, I think is really helpful in understanding the broad scope of it. But I think one of the things that's a through line, certainly in our generation, going back to the Jesus movement in the seventies is this quest for authenticity and this ability to make the presence of God seem imminent and close at hand and very personal. I think there's a sensitivity to the spiritual world that is a real gift. And I try to honor that in the book, even as I try to also critique the ways in which I think emotionalism has been too much of a focus in a lot of evangelicalism and has actually been a cause of a lot of problems because I think it leads to the anti-intellectualism that you see in a lot of evangelicalism. I think it makes people susceptible to being manipulated and misled. Those are some of the problems with it. But I think that's one of the great gifts that evangelicals have. And I also think there's a, a lot of really good people in evangelicalism. I think private character is a real strong suit for a lot of people. Obviously, we've seen a lot of scandals and a lot of bad behavior by a lot of leaders and institutions. But I think at the lay level, a lot of folks are good people who want to do the right thing. And I think generally, they they try really hard to do that. Other people may disagree with me on this, but the people I know are generally people really trying to, to live out their faith. And one of the key distinctions for me is between private character and public character. I think in the realm of church life and family life, a lot of churches put a lot of emphasis on how to train people or equip people to to live Christian lives. But I think when it comes to living out in the public square or the larger culture and living for the common good, 
there's a disconnect between the, the, the faith and the principles of the faith and how to apply them broadly. There are so many other people more qualified to talk about this than me, but I think one thing I've seen as a journalist is just the disconnect between Christian private behavior and political behavior. Do you think that that is, I'm, I'm thinking about that just in terms of my own experience in evangelicalism, that people, unfortunately, are still very segregated. So the private lives, people are with other people that are just like them, right? And so then there becomes this kind of group think that seems coherent with one's private life because everyone in your group feels the same, you know, and then that then becomes an us versus them, whether it's Christian versus non-Christian or conservatives versus liberals. The disconnect, I feel like a lot of it is because, yeah, we're, we're racially segregated. We're also, um, in terms of where evangelical has become, like you can't be a Democrat <laughs> evangelical, at least this is what I've heard in churches as well as institutions. You feel like that is correct, right? You feel like that must be what evangelicalism is because everyone in your group believes this. And then anyone who doesn't or is slightly uh, challenging it gets kicked out or is dismissed. Yeah, there's a couple of things I could kind of zero, zero in on there. But I think one of the common dynamics that you're putting your finger on in a lot of churches is that they, they become too much of a safe space for people. And, and people, my experience was that we lived way too much of our lives in a bubble. I think a lot of that's driven by leaders who probably just want things to be <laughs> less complicated and want more control, sometimes for craven reasons and sometimes for just human nature reasons of wanting it to be simpler and less complicated. But yeah, we lived in a bubble there just was not a lot of propulsiveness to our church culture. We were not being propelled out to encounter people and systems and cultures that conflicted with our own. And this is where the emotionalism comes in as well, because this is one of the connections I made as I, as I wrote the book. If your goal is to remain in this spiritually euphoric frame of mind because that's presented to you as one of the chief ways that you please God. It's almost, it is impossible, I think, to stay in that frame of mind, a euphoric emotional state, and walk the path or the way of Christ because the path or the way of Christ walks into vulnerability, it walks into messiness, it walks into suffering, it walks into these things that are difficult, that take a toll emotionally. Church absolutely should be a place, a hospital, a place of recuperation from those things. But if church is this place where we try to sustain an emotional high, um, my experience was that I, I became increasingly like aware, I think, that I that I needed to be out because I felt so stale because this environment was just trying to keep everything preserved in amber. So we could all feel spiritual and happy and upbeat and righteous. And I don't think the way of Christ 
can be can be followed with a whole lot of integrity if if that's the model. Yeah, if, what if you that said. Makes about, sense. Yes, because what you said about a culture becoming theology, because then folks then label, at least in the institutions I was in, label things that don't feel like part of that euphoric oneness, according to whoever's in power, right? And to label that as non-Christian or unchristian, to officially kind of create doctrine that's not there, right? And then and I think teaching and, and um, forcing folks to believe in things that are cultural and political that are not, like you said, Christ-following. And unfortunately, it's very painful, I think, as someone like me who is trying to, I think, reclaim my faith or think about faith in a way that is, yeah, just trying to kind of slough off these these lies while remembering what it is that drew me to the faith. And I think that that emotional, I, I came to faith on my own in middle school. I was seeking actually going to churches on my own as like a 12, 13 year old. And I, it was one of those Jesus camps for youth that, and it felt very euphoric, like what you said, the, um, the kind of spiritual experience is, and, and the altar call and all those kind of heightened devoting your life and transforming, you know, and all that stuff. But it was real for me, for sure. It's interesting because the call immediately to then evangelize, that is not comfortable, you know, and perhaps not all churches do this anymore, but but that was the message. And, and all throughout college, when I, you know, joined a church, it was about bringing others into the fold, right? And doing that, whether through uh, short-term missions, whether through going just around the UCLA. Like, I remember going to a person who was sitting by himself and going up to him, and he was um, perhaps an international student, I think. And he looked at us. He was so happy to see us. And once we mentioned Jesus, his face was like crestfallen. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, this is this is interesting, right? I just I just thought like something that was good news to me is bad news to him or the way that we were doing it and just thinking about what it is to kind of relay a message. And, and it is confrontational. So then there's this, yes, let's feel good around each other and be one in our mission, but you're supposed to feel uncomfortable in just this act of trying to convince others and perhaps not always in a uh, natural good way. I mean, I don't even know how I feel about that kind of evangelism anymore, but but certainly I did it, right? And it was uncomfortable, but it definitely was about like making them like us, right? It wasn't kind of respecting them where they are and, and having kind of a dialogue. I had one friend who said, can I just have friendship without evangelism? <laughs> and uh, And so, yeah, what do you think about this kind of like call to you know, the, the, the great commission, we're supposed to reach out to people who are unlike us. Yeah, I did. I did all of that. I lived in the suburbs of DC and there was this place called the Rio and it was like a man-made lake and a movie theater and some restaurants. And these folks would go walk right up to people. And, and I think one of the things that you're presented with is this idea that if you're not willing to do that, then you're ashamed of Christ. And of course there's that famous scripture uh, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So there's this dynamic that I actually think exists in non-Christian settings as well, which is like a shame of a lack of purity or a lack of intensity. It's in a negative feedback loop because 
if you're not willing to be extreme, then you're weak. I think often the opposite is is actually true. It never felt right to me. It didn't feel respectful. It didn't feel loving. And I don't think I went to that again. I think I went to that like one time and I was like, this just feels wrong. And I didn't go back. So your first question was, what does it look like to leave evangelicalism? I think the key answer to that is that it looks like moving towards something, not moving away from something. But it's always been very important to me, actually, from a very young age to be for something. And 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 these were things also that were part of early on my disaffection with the church and conservative culture was the sense of I just heard so much criticism and complaining and not a lot of what are we for? What are we what are we about? And so I'm trying as I critique to also praise, I'm trying to affirm and move towards something. And I'm also trying to avoid the absolutism that in my new perspective that characterized my old perspective, because it's very easy to pick up a new point of view, but carry it with the same absolutism, the same black and white thinking about where you are now, as opposed to where you were before. And I, I think that's a key like measure of growth. As I was talking to some students from Baylor this week who are in DC for internships. And I told them, I said, if you can't say you don't know something is true for sure, then then what's the need for faith there? If you actually like know things are true or say that you know that things are true, like I don't see the role of faith in that. And I saw some heads nodding, but what I should have followed up with, I kind of was thinking about this afterward was, so think about your most clearly or your most dearly held beliefs. Can you actually say, I don't know if this is true? Because if you haven't grappled with that in a real way, uh, I think you're. I think you're missing something. I think you know you're missing the testing of your faith. That's really healthy, and I mean really sitting with that. And I guess some people might say that's unhealthy. Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe they think I'm trying to just undermine people's faith. But I actually think it's strengthening of your faith. Yeah, I think that when I started working at the evangelical institution I was at, they made us sign a lot of things and you had to be certain, right, of these mostly, well, not mostly, half of it, no, maybe two thirds was theological, but at least one third was cultural, right? This certainty that they expected and then like things like, oh gosh, intelligent design and these kind of theories that are meant to combat science, right? And that you have to accept as truth, otherwise you're not Christian. I actually, I don't know if I've actually talked about this on the podcast, but now that I've left, I actually had a low point where I was like, wow, I don't think any of this is true. (laughs) And if I don't think any of this is true, maybe this faith is not true. And because I disagree with them on all the cultural things, maybe I don't agree with them on the quote unquote theological Christian things, right? I definitely had a very low point. And it was this Um, I had to talk to a spiritual director who then brought me back to exactly what you're saying, that as long as you're going towards something, as long as you're going towards Christ, you're okay, right? It's okay not to be, and, and that the mystery of God is actually where we should be at, 
right? There's no way we can know all of God, otherwise we'd be God. And to be okay with the the mystery of God, I think that gave me so much peace because I was, I mean, if I had to like take those, those quote unquote truths that they were presenting to me to the end, I knew that they were not true, 100%. And that made me feel very iffy about my faith, right? But faith is exactly that, that we have to believe in things that we cannot prove as absolute truth. So, you know, you mentioned that it's too emotional. I was at a place where it wasn't emotional enough sometimes, you know? They, they made everything kind of this argument, right? This truth and not truth. Yes, right. I was just thinking about this recently because somebody else was saying something similar. And, I, and it occurred to me, I've lived both of these experiences because I grew up in this church setting in the 70s and 80s. It was more like Bethel is now, you know, like these very emotional, lots of music, uh, very charismatic, lots of raising hands. And then the most interesting part of sort of the story that I was a part of, this was a church called Covenant Life and Sovereign Grace Ministries. And some people will, will recognize that. That's CJ Mahaney was basically in charge of all that. And then Josh Harris came in at a certain point as well. The really interesting point here is that for about 20 years, we were pretty charismatic. And then in the mid nineties, when you had the Toronto blessing and the Brownsville revival kicking off with like really extreme radical, you know, manifestations or, or expressions of spirituality. I mean, the most extreme, I think were people crawling around like animals and barking like dogs, pretty out there stuff. And our church had a period of time, somewhere around a year, maybe less, where we were having every Sunday and probably some services during the week where afterwards people would go up, they would fall down, they would shake, they would get covered with sheets, all this stuff, like really hardcore Pentecostalism, I guess is what you would call that. So that was like mid nineties. And by 1997 covenant life, I think the previous name right before that was people of destiny international in the late nineties, which is a very like charismatic, like, you know, we're going to seize the day by 1997, they've changed the name to sovereign grace ministries. And they're putting out their first issue of sovereign grace magazine. And the cover is five point Calvinism. So we go from charismatic, really charismatic for 20 years, really hardcore Pentecostal, and then all of a sudden, five-point Calvinism. And so for the next several years, that's when I really got into my faith, became a zealot. And that was all about theology and Calvinism. And we still had these services where people would raise their hands, but we were very much in that world of the young, restless, and reformed that Colin Hansen wrote about. And meanwhile, my dad got into this world because he rejected Catholicism that he was raised in, which was totally stale and formal to him. And now we're sending our son to a Jesuit high school. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a full circle. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, when I was seeking out different kinds of churches, when I was, you know, trying to find God, I also went to a Catholic church and I was fine with it until they're like, you can't take communion because you haven't been baptized. You haven't gone through convocation. And I was like, oh, well, then I got to leave because I can't participate in church, you know? So there are some, I think that the, the kind of 
evangelicalism you can just access immediately, right? Anybody can come in and just access. I was really drawn to that because I just wanted it. Just I just wanted things to be simple. I just wanted God, right? And and yet, yes, Catholicism. I think having the kind of um, now looking. I think I went to a. Um, what is it called? Like it was a Thursday right before Easter where the priests washed the congregants' feet. And I remember going to that service and thinking, this is amazing. You know, just the kind of reenactment of what Jesus did and thinking, wow, you know, there are beautiful things about different expressions of faith, right? And that there's not just one way of doing it. And so I'm I'm thankful that um, yeah that that we really as people of faith can and should you know explore all different expressions. I think for for my job as a journalist, that's been one thing that has actually brought me to different expressions of Christianity and also other faiths. Like I've been in a mosque during prayers. I haven't gone to services at a Jewish synagogue. I should or other faiths, but I've been in lots of different expressions of Christianity. And it's just one of many things I think Christians would benefit from if there was more of that, like seeing the different expressions, seeing the the different strengths or things you don't like. It's like extremely healthy and, and positive. So I'm a sociologist who has studied race, racism, and a Christian of color. It's, it's, been really hard sometimes to be around white evangelicals, not just because of kind of, you know, moving, not moving away, but moving towards something else, but, you know, breaking from evangelicalism, but also often feeling dismissed and attacked for my very identity and existence. And I think that there is this kind of, again, this cultural enabling of racism, bigotry through now what we think of as evangelicalism. And, and I really was taken by how you said that Christians should engage in culture care rather than culture war. And I feel like it's racial war. And I, you know, I know that a lot of churches and a lot of organizations are like talking about reconciliation, but I haven't really seen that actually come to fruition in any real way. But what is, you know, what does culture care look like? Is there even like a hope for a community of faith to kind of be able to come together that cares rather than wars with each other? Well, Culture Care is the name of a book by Mako Fujimara, who is a Japanese-American painter. And I actually encountered his work probably close to 20 years ago and have kind of, you know, he his work, his he's written a lot. He's written a couple of books. And his paintings and his writing have been a pretty constant presence in my life over the last 20 years. Man, his his artifacts, both his paintings and his writings have been big ones for me probably among maybe the most formative. He writes about the materials that he uses in his paintings, which are often minerals that he takes and disintegrates. And he pulverizes them. And he uses the pulverization of these minerals as a metaphor for the way that opening ourselves up to the work of God in our lives and opening ourselves up to sacrifice and and walking that path of of Christian of Christ often does break us apart. And he also uses the metaphor of this pottery that he that he works in, where he takes old pottery that's been shattered and puts it back together. And the end product is more beautiful than what was original. That's his that's his assertion. And the metaphor is essentially that we're broken apart, we're pulverized, we're but but as God 
puts us back together, something more beautiful is made. And it's, you know, it's a play on that, that verse also written by Paul, where he says, you know, you know, in my weakness, you know, your strength is made perfect in my weakness. And now, Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong Yoon. Today, I read from Mako Fujimura's book, Culture Care, Reconnecting with Beauty for Our Common Life. Chapter 6, Beauty as Food for the Soul. Effective stewardship leads to generative work and a generative culture. We turn wheat into bread and bread into community. We turn grapes into wine and wine into occasions for joyful camaraderie, conviviality, conversation, and creativity. We turn minerals into paints and paints into works that lift the heart or stir the spirit. We turn ideas and experiences into imaginative worlds for sheer enjoyment and to expand the scope of our empathy. As in creation care, cultural stewardship includes trying to find our place in the wider ecosystem. It asks us to consider what we have been given and where we are situated. It will take human nature into account, acknowledging our true longings and limitations. That was Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong Yoon. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can get 30% off and free U.S. shipping on any book when you use the promo code DISRUPT at ivypress.com. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T. And join us next time for more of Nancy's Deeper Thoughts. Yeah, I was, oh gosh, sorry. I was just going through my own journey about feeling maybe excluded from the community by the kind of recent, recent, I mean, really post-Trump, the kind of very open the floodgates, I felt like, were really open for Christians to just be openly racist, frankly, right, after Trump in ways that maybe they don't think of. It's like it's like they no longer felt like they had to watch their words. And and it felt it just felt very hostile. It's like all of a sudden evangelicalism became really hostile to people like me and other people who want to see justice in the world. And so so I was just thinking about, gosh, you know, the wars, right? Essentially, it's wars. We're warring. And what is what does the opposite of that look like? And shouldn't that be shouldn't that be what Christians are known for? <laughs> the the caring and the healing and the loving, right? I mean, this is something that has also been on my mind for a very long time. I actually wrote a piece for Yahoo News back a couple of years ago, five or six years ago now, because I went down to visit Jamar Tisby at his home in the South, in the Delta not long after the 2016 election. Uh, and I started that article by writing about how oftentimes in my most religious, in my most intensely e- euphoric religious period, probably like late teens, early 20s, I would often be, you know, in the midst of a, a church worship service. My arms would be raised, my eyes would be closed. I would be really reaching for the heavens. and oftentimes the thing that was on my mind in those moments was my grief over the state of race in our country. And so it's always been something important to me. And, and so over the past several years, the past decade, we've seen a, a lot of like, whew, man, a lot of movement on this stuff. 
in a lot of different directions. And you had Ferguson and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. And that kind of kicked off the entire Black Lives Matter movement. And then for several years, you had a lot of momentum in that direction. The, the videos of police brutality and police killings. Um, uh, Walter Scott, I think, in Charleston, South Carolina. That's one that actually Tim Scott, you know, Senator Tim Scott, the Republican who endorsed Donald Trump in 2016, that's one that he talks about, you know, a lot himself. Um, that happened, I believe, in North Charleston, which is where Tim Scott grew up. Guy shot in the back. And then I think the gun placed next to him by a cop. So you see all this and you're thinking, how much of this is going on without being caught on camera, right? And then the backlash begins. Clearly, the election of Donald Trump was a backlash to a lot of this. Donald Trump himself was in some ways a large, in, in a lot of ways, a, a part of a backlash against the election of our first black president. And then the four years of, of Trump's presidency um, kind of escalating into EF Charlottesville in 2017. And then just sort of one episode after another, where at every turn, the sitting president was trying to intentionally aggravate and escalate racial division to solidify his base and and get them closer to him. All of this kind of culminates in the summer of 2020 with George Floyd. I just read a great piece recently by Jake Midor at mereorthodoxy.com. It's just called Shame. I encourage people to go read it. It was published in the last few months. But that deals with the shifts inside largely the Southern Baptist Convention on these issues. But there's been this shift where people were open to reassessing America's history, to reassessing the state of things, to exploring questions about how much of evangelicalism has been overly focused on individual sin versus collective sin and systemic injustice. And a lot of those doors have slammed shut over the past couple years. These are, these are books that need to be written to, and I'm not saying I, I'm not a big fan of like argument books. Obviously my book makes some arguments, but like I'm more a fan of like, we need books to really unpack the history and, and help people understand what is happening. And I think Jake Medor's piece in your orthodoxy does a good job of that. Just showing the shift and showing what led up to it. I guess my only point here is that the receptivity among many evangelicals to considering these questions is much less than it used to be just a few short years ago. And that makes it hard to discuss it now. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to disarm, I think, a lot of the the fears that are now newly present in the minds of a lot of white evangelicals. You know, a lot of stuff has kind of been weaponized around critical race theory and wokeness. These are now terms that are wielded the same way that other terms can be wielded, I think, overly broadly in other spheres. I think, you know, sometimes people can be called a bigot to casually at times to shut down debate. Well, we're definitely seeing that 
on the right with terms like CRT and wokeness. And my concern is that people increasingly are using language as weapons uh, to shut down debate, to shut up the other side, to win these victories and like raise money, increase their platform, rather than going through the, the route of honest inquiry. But that's one of the things that it looks like to be a person of culture care is to really care about language, to really care about intellectual honesty and integrity, to really care about what, what do words mean? Like, what are we talking about? Are we open to new perspectives? This is all kind of like a cliche in some respects, but it just means rejecting the idea that we're here today to mostly just like own the other side. That. Mm. I mean, I guess I just, I, I agree, certainly on, I was on a panel with Roxanne Gay, and she had mentioned, we were talking about cancel culture, and she had mentioned that there needs to be a road to redemption, right? There has to be a road to redemption. We have to have grace, otherwise we'll never, ever be able to come together. But at the same time, I don't want to say that both sides are evenly, you know, like that one is just like the other, like the people who are using the word bigot, perhaps too casually, and the people who are kind of actually, you know, using <laughs> using words that are uh, that could be thought of as racist because of the history, right? The history of our country. And I don't want to have equivalency, but I, I, I see what you mean about having dialogue and being able to, like you said, seek out truth and and not close the other side off completely. But I think that a lot of people are tired. You know, I think it's like, I felt like at my institution, it was always like the people of color, white women having to forgive and having to reconcile. It, it didn't feel like the power dynamics allowed for there to be the other way, right? There was, it was like uh, reverse racism was more, I think, a, a thing that was more valued or listened to than actual racism. And so, yeah, just wanted to put that out there. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think some there's a term out there, asymmetry, asymmetric, you know, where both sides are. And I think in a lot of ways, the right is is much further down the path of, of certain things. And so it's asymmetric in terms of the right being worse than the left. But I also... And also the right, I would say, historically... Yeah. I mean, if you look at Jamar's Tisby's book, he, he's actually, we just had him on the podcast, where the color of compromise, where the kind of history of evangelicalism has been to buttress a system, a U.S. system of racism, right? There was no, very little, especially the bigger kind of names, very little challenge to that system. Yeah. I guess I also don't know how helpful it is to like do a lot of the comparison of you know, this side is worse than the other, mostly just because I generally am speaking to people on the right in terms of like, that's where I come from. And that's what I know best. And so I kind of feel like I understand that world really well. So that's, that's probably my motive for speaking in that direction towards that audience. Right. Because if you guilt them and shame them, the conversation ends. Yeah, I just I yeah. want to be effective, mm -hmm. and I remember is a good is a good um, like a good maybe anecdote. I remember back in twenty, I think it was the, actually the the Democratic convention in twenty, probably twenty sixteen. It was in Philly, and I had coffee with a person of color, and we were talking about language, 
and I had a couple conversations like this and I, I kind of registered some, I, I said something like, and I don't remember the term, but I've, I said something like this might make people defensive or, or put them on their heels or whatever. And what I said was kind of dismissed and I didn't take offense. I was mostly just like, okay, well, I'm going to consider that. Maybe it's, it's quite possible they're right. You know? And I think a couple years on, I think what we've seen is that, and I think you see this in the political sphere as well. I think activist language often gets weaponized by bad actors who want to whip up fear and get everybody into a defensive crouch. So this is not my area of expertise. This is a pretty like layman's point of view here. But I think if you're somebody on the left who wants to see policy goals, and I'll go back to sort of the race issue in a second, but I think if you want to see your policy goals realized, I think human nature has to be taken into account. I think the realities of how human nature intersects with uh, what's politically achievable has to be taken into account. And I think also the ways that rhetoric among activists can be weaponized and spread much quicker than in the past and used against you also has to be taken into account. I think I'm just in a different place now and and I think everybody also has a different call. Like there's always going to be a need for people to press the issue, to really confront in a pretty bold way. But I don't think that's everybody's job. And I guess one of the unfortunate things about modern like discourse is that it gets kind of flattened so that we seems like we end up coming up with a lot of absolutes that are applicable across all peoples and roles. And we lose sight of like the need for different functions. I'm in a different place personally about this, about language, because I, I want to help people who I think, you know, need help. And I don't think I'm helping them by putting things in front of them that just make them defensive. I, I totally get that because there's a lot of people that, including people of color who feel that way as well in terms of how to come together and how to not be defensive, how to have civil conversations, right? And discourse. It's just that in my experience at the institution, I felt like my institution was kind of like a microcosm of maybe evangelicalism at large. And I felt like we spent so much time watching our language and trying to reconcile. But when there's a power differential, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter what we did. We were just shut down all the time, right? Because we were in the minority. And it didn't matter if we had nice language. I mean, most of the time we did. We never we never did accusations. I often felt like that disempowered us and people were always living in fear of not speaking the truth because they didn't want to offend the powers that be. So it became almost uh, respectability politics. It became it became assimilationist. And I think Jamar Tisby said, like, you know, you're either, what did he say? He said, you either are burnout, sell out, or you actually, like, leave, right? And I think that um, there were a lot of, I felt like selling out, right? Because people were just afraid to speak their truth. And then it was always at a detriment to us. 
And, oh gosh, and to kind of leave that place and be able to say what I'm saying to you now, I don't know if I would have said what I'm saying to you now mm-hmm. a year ago when I was still at the institution, right? Mm-hmm. Just because I was fearful of losing my job or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, these are not easy, easy issues. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I'm a huge fan of deliberative debate. And the more of that we have, the better. And, and, and it's kind of a, a rare thing these days. But I'm a big fan of seeing up structures for more of that. That's why I like things like intelligence squared debates and like formal, formal debate, because I think a lot of the chaos we feel is just that <laughs> there's no, there's no like boundaries. Like everything is always debate everywhere all the time. Uh, and that's because we have these phones with social media on them and we haven't learned really how to regulate our engagement with them. And nobody has, there are no rules or, 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 um, or limits on it yet. So I think the more we can channel all that energy into certain formats and, and times and places, the better so that we can then go like just enjoy uh, a beer with our friends or like some time at the park with our kids or, you know, serving at the local food bank or whatever. Like, you know, we just, we got to put stuff on the back shelf sometimes we can't always be agitating or we can't always and maybe that's wrong too i don't know i feel like sometimes when it isn't even our choice when you are like for me i feel like either i leave spaces or if i'm going to be in there it's just a constant state of agitation you know just by my presence so it's it's sometimes it's yeah it's so it's, it's a privilege to be able to have uh to be able to check out i think i mean both within the spaces and, you know, me being able to leave the space, you know, so all of that. 